Lord, we thank you for these children. We pray that you would speak to them as they study your word this morning. And Lord, may you speak also to us as we reflect on your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. We are in um, Matthew chapter 22. And so if you have a Bible, um, by all means, I encourage you to pull it out or Bible app on your phone. Or um, if you didn't bring a Bible and you want something to hold in your hands, there's some there on the back table that you can use this morning. Um, but this would be a good one to follow along with. Um, Matthew chapter 22, beginning with the first verse. Um, and what we're going to see in this passage is the Pharisees are trying, well, the Pharisees, and in this case the Herodians, but the Jewish leaders, they are trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to, I mean, it says it, they're trying to get him entangled in his words, or is the direct quote. They want to get him in trouble. Now, why might this be? Well, let's just remember where we are in Matthew's Gospel, right? Um, It was just a few days ago, and and, um, a few chapters ago, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Now, we didn't read this because typically that happens, obviously, in the Anglican Church in, on Palm Sunday. But, but, but in the context of Matthew's Gospel, that's what has happened. Jesus has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. He's gone to the temple. He's overturned the money changers, and he's driven them out. Um, and he's begun to teach. And all of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are, are asking the question, by whose authority do you say these things? Who are you? Um, And then when he tells them, when he implies strongly that he's speaking under the authority of God, he then proceeds to go and tell them three parables that we've um, spent the last few weeks reading. And basically, these three parables have said, um, Jewish leaders, you have forfeited your right, your inheritance of the kingdom of God. And God is going to now give his kingdom to others. That's the main message, that the the Gentiles are going to be inheritors of the promises of God. And that was enough to um, drive them to want to arrest him, right? It says, um, after after the second of those parables, it says that they perceived that he was talking about them. And they decided at that moment to arrest him. But they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So they're ready, right? They've had enough. They've seen enough. They're ready to have Jesus arrested. But here's the problem. Everybody loves Jesus. He's beloved by the crowds. And so if they arrest him as the Jewish leaders, all of a sudden they will not be liked by the crowds. And that will be a problem. And so they're trying to figure out what to do. How are they going to arrest Jesus. Well, once they, um, now that they've realized they don't have the support of the crowds, um, their next strategy is to trap him. This says it very clearly at the beginning of our, um, of our reading today. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. They want to trip him up. They want to entangle him. And what we'll find is that Jesus, I mean, Nobody's surprised. Jesus is way smarter than the Pharisees and the Herodians. And so um, he turns the tables back on them. And he does not give a direct answer to their question, as we'll see. But he, he turns it around and he pushes it back into their court. And they end up leaving 
amazed. They're marveling at what he has done. So, they're trying to trap Jesus. So the first part that um, we'll look at is the challenge. How are they trying to trap him? What What is the challenge that they are making? Well, what they've done is they've gone, the Pharisees have gone and gotten um, a group of people who they're traditionally at odds with. They've gone and gotten the Herodians. And so um, if you were to imagine the different sects of Judaism in that day, there's a few, and we'll get to the Sadducees later, um, but, but in this case there's the Pharisees, and these were the ones you hear the most about in, in the Bible, and these were the law keepers. And they were the ones who said the only way that we... Um, we'll see the kingdom of God, that we'll have our land restored to us, the presence of God with us again, is if we keep the law perfectly. Those are the Pharisees. They want to be perfect keepers of the law. And so they would even go out of their way and make up laws that would prevent you from breaking the actual laws that were in Scripture. And so, for instance, the classic example is the um, Scriptures would say, you know, keep holy the Sabbath. And the Pharisees would say, well, that means no work on the Sabbath. And they would say, well, what does work and mean? And they said, well, if you take more than 3,000 steps, you're doing work or something like that. And so you're limited. They say, so the law is you can't take more than X number of steps in a day. That's not in the Bible, right? But it's called fencing the law. They're trying to protect it because they were convinced that by keeping the law, God would fulfill his promises. That was the one thing that was keeping God from fulfilling his promises. So, so that's the Pharisees. The Herodians, on the other hand, um, I don't, it's hard to say how concerned they were about God coming back and keeping his promises because they had things pretty good in the here and now, right? Um, you remember Herod? He would have um, been the, the king, and I put that in, in quotes, the scare quotes. He would have been um, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, um, except he wasn't like a, a true king. He was a puppet king. So the Romans had come and they conquered Israel. And the way they were ruling over Israel is they put somebody that they had in their back pocket in charge of um, the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. And that person was Herod. So um, Herod's living, living life large. He's got a big palace. Um, he's getting nice kickbacks from the Romans, he's getting nice income from the taxes they're collecting. And the Herodians were um, people loyal to Herod who are benefiting from that as well. Um, typically quite at odds with the Pharisees, right? But now you can start to see why they were recruited to ask this particular question of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians asked Jesus this question. The Herodians very much would have been interested in the answer to should you pay taxes? Because that's where their income was coming from. That's where their lifestyle was coming from. Um, the Pharisees would have been very interested in should you pay taxes to Caesar? Because they think Jesus and the, the true Jews should be loyal to the king of God. I mean, to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. And, and how can you be, you know, if God's the king, how can you be paying money to Caesar, right? And both of them would have been threatened right? They both would have been threatened by Jesus because here's this new um, leader um, sort of starting to feel a little bit like a rebellion and he's leading these huge crowds of people and that's a threat both to the power of the Pharisees and the power of the Herodians and so they're ready to trap him. 
and they ask a question about taxes. And so, you know, tax collectors were, were hated by the Jews. Um, they were seen as people who, have, who had, um, <clears throat> had been decided to capitulate to the Roman Empire. They were working for the Romans, and they were collecting money from their fellow Jewish people and passing it on to these oppressive, ruling um, Roman leaders. And so they did not like paying taxes to an oppressive government that has come in and is ruling them from afar. Does this sound familiar, right? We've all, um, we know as Americans a thing or two about paying taxes to what we consider oppressive governments. Um, they didn't like it. And in fact, this has been a spark. This has been a hot point for the Jewish people for a while. And um, in about 6 AD, so when Jesus was, was a little boy, there was a leader named Judas of Galilee. Um, and he was a revolutionary leader. And he was encouraging the people not to pay taxes. And he started leading this rebellion. And they weren't paying taxes. And the, the Roman government came down hard. And they had them executed, and they lined the streets with crosses of people who were rebelling and not paying taxes to the Roman government, saying, this is what happens if you don't listen, if you do not pay your taxes. This is what happens. And so this is a big deal, this collecting of taxes. And so they asked Jesus the question, right? Um, there in verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. They're buttering him up, aren't they? Right? That's so funny. They're like, oh, Jesus, you're so great. We know you don't care about other people's opinions, so you'll tell us the truth. Um, you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful, and meaning like by, according to Jewish law, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, you can see that it's a bit of a trap, right? Um, on one hand, if Jesus says, no, it's unlawful, you, shouldn't, you don't need to pay taxes to Caesar or handle Roman money or do anything like that. Um, if he says that, you know, they all know his fate. and They know the fate of his movement. We've just um, seen it, right? Over 20 years ago, it happened um, to somebody else who told the people not to pay taxes. So on one hand, if he says, no, you don't pay, don't pay your taxes... The crowds will love him, um, but his movement will be ended pretty quickly, of course, at least from the Pharisees' point of view. And, um, but on the other hand, if he says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, well, all of a sudden, these crowds that um, love him probably will not love him as much. They don't want to pay taxes. And in fact, it's a fair question. If you are proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, how can you then be paying taxes and paying money to another kingdom. And so he knows and, and they know that, I don't think Jesus is super concerned about it, but they know that he'll lose the crowds if he says that in fact is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. If God is king, then Caesar isn't. And so that should mean no taxes. It's a tight spot for Jesus. One answer is going to lead to his arrest. The other answer, he's going to lose the crowds. They're going to turn against him. Um, and then when the Pharisees come in to arrest him, there'll be no problems. They won't, they won't matter as much. So how will Jesus answer? And the way I read it, I, I see there's um, three 
sort of ways that he responds. He answers, this is sort of a threefold answer um, that he gives the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the first one is he exposes them. The first thing he does is he exposes them for what they are. They're, they're hypocrites. He, he says it, but he doesn't just say it, he proves it, right? So um, if you're reading on, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So he points out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and says, let me see the coin. Show it to me. And the first thing that does is it makes those Pharisees, it makes those Herodians take this hated coin of the Roman Empire, it makes them take it out of their pocket, their own pockets, and give it to Jesus. This is a terrible coin, a hated coin. If you were to look at it, right, it's a denarius, a day's wage. That was the coin that was used to pay the tax. And on one side, each side had an image and an inscription. On one side, there's an image of Caesar, of Tiberius Caesar at this time. And underneath it, the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine, son of God. A sacrilegious thing to have on a coin for the Jews. And on the other side, there was Pax, the goddess of peace. The inscription under Pax was high priest. Right? These are Jewish symbols. These are um, symbols that mean a lot in the Jewish religion. The, The term son of God, the the image on the coin, the, the idea of a high priest that anybody, any Roman god or goddess could facilitate a relationship with God. These are offensive coins. They're sacrilegious symbols for a devout Jew and especially for a Jewish leader. But here you have the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, they're masking as particularly pious religious leaders, right? One is a a group of very intense law keepers, and the other is, I mean, they, they belong to the office of the king of the Jewish people. That was a high office in those days. But they're the ones carrying the coins. They're the ones getting the money, getting the kickbacks. Should you pay taxes, Jesus says, you hypocrites. How dare you ask me such a question? Your pockets are full of this money that is tormenting your people. And so they would seek to trap Jesus, but they have no convictions of their own. Um, And they have no no way that they could even answer that question themselves. So that's one. They're they're hypocrites. These are people that are are quite willing to pocket the money of the empire, and they're putting Jesus to the test by asking him a question about it. But he goes on. There's, There's two other points he has to make. So he says, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And in verse 20, Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Or um, maybe a better translation would be, or different, I think it's probably better, is whose whose image and inscription is this, is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Whose image is on the coin? Well, when 
when the Jewish people heard the word image, and hopefully y'all too, when you hear this word image, um, your mind needs to go back to Genesis chapter 2, where God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make him man and, let us make them man and woman in the image of God. Let us make them. And so there is something about this word image that's plastered on our hearts. And it has to do with, I don't even think ownership is, is the right word, but, but devotedness or, or what you are set aside for, right? That we have on us the image of God. And we'll, we're going to come back to that, okay? Put that in your back pocket. But, but if, if, if God has created us and we belong to Him and we're made in His image, then the implication of what Jesus is saying is this coin that bears the image of Caesar, who does it belong to? Well, it belongs to Caesar. So he says this coin bears the image of the, um, the, the Roman emperor. What should you do with it? Well, give it back to Caesar. That's where it belongs. This is a non-answer. And this is something I, th- I think we need to spend a little bit of time on. Um, because you'll hear... I mean, a lot of people would say that, oh, well, this is a passage um, that says we should pay our taxes and obey civil authorities. Um, And I would say, well, you should pay your taxes, and for the most part, you should obey the civil authorities. But that's not what this passage is about, okay? That might be pretty good teaching, although it's nuanced, um, but it doesn't come from here. Jesus is not answering their question. He's refusing to answer it. He's saying, that coin belongs to Caesar. Why don't you just give it back to him? In fact, it's almost this political indifference. Like this coin with these sacrilegious inscriptions on it mean absolutely nothing to me. Give it back. It's meaningless to me. Get rid of it is basically what Jesus is saying. He's not saying pay taxes. He's saying not, not pay taxes. He's just saying, um, that's Caesar's coin. Let him have it. It's of no use to me. Whose image is on the coin? Whom, to whom does it belong? Well, the image is Caesar, and the coin belongs to him. This is a, a non-answer. Jesus isn't telling them to pay his taxes or not, but there is this, um, I mean, do you all see it? This indifference in his voice. You know, like this, Oh, this money means nothing to me. Give it back to Caesar. It's got his image on it. But it's the third point that is particularly important to Jesus, right? In verse 21, um, he always said, Whose image and inscription is this? He, they said Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the second part of that, And to God the things that are God's. So where do we find the image of God? The image of Caesar is on a coin. Where do we find the image of God? Well, it's written all over us, right? It's written on our hearts that we are made in the image of God. And so what Jesus is saying is that coin means nothing, but if you want to know what to give to the Lord, give him yourself. Give him everything you have, all of you, all of you, because you're made in his image. You're made in his likeness. You belong to him. You are His children. Dedicate yourselves to the Lord. Give to God the things that are God's. Friends, the image of God is printed on your hearts. And Jesus is saying the things of this world, they really don't matter. 
what Caesar's, Caesar can have, and it'll go, to him to, it'll go with him to his grave. But what's yours is the Lord himself who has put his image on your heart. And that's something that we treasure. And it's something that changes everything about who we are. And it invites us to give ourselves back to him, all of ourselves, to be given back to the Lord. Give to Caesar what belongs to him, but give to God the things that are his. Of course, when they heard it, verse 22, they marveled and they left him and went away. I mean, how are you going to argue with that, right? They're like, okay, we lost lost that round. Uh, They'll be back, right? Or others will be back. Um, But they, um, the Pharisees and the Herodians at that time went away. So, what are, we, um, what are we going to do with this? The first one, I think, we just need to remind ourselves. Jesus is revolutionary. And I know it doesn't always feel that way. Like we can get very comfortable following Jesus. But he is incredibly revolutionary. He is a revolutionary leader. He is seeking to overturn the authorities and structures of the world. But it is not a physical battle. He is not a political, he's not leading a political revolution, right? He's not coming in and and protesting politically the Roman government. No, refuse to pay your taxes. Stand in the streets. Um, I mean, there there might be some of that that Jesus' followers are called to. Think about the civil rights movement. These are all good things, but but he's actually seeking to overturn our hearts. And when he does that, when he can overturn the hearts of the people of God, it will change the order of the world around us. And so it's not a political revolution, um, first and foremost, but it is political in the sense that it's politically indifferent. And I think that's what's actually kind of helpful here. Jesus is like, Caesar's coin, whatever, give it back to Caesar. He's not ushering in this sort of new um, Jewish coin saying, this is the currency you're supposed to use. He's just saying that one belongs to Caesar, that one belongs to the United States, that one belongs to France. None of it belongs to the kingdom of God. So give it back to the person who gave it to you. Now, I don't think he wants you to like, put your money in a, like an envelope and mail it to the government, um, but he wants you to use it for the purposes of God. I think that's the point he's trying to make. How do you use this money for the purposes of the kingdom and being sort of indifferent to, um, to, to its hold, having, to having a hold on your life? So that's the first thing. Jesus' revolution is not a um, political revolution. And the second thing I want you to take home is that Jesus is calling you to give yourself and everything you are and everything you have Back to him. Um, and sometimes we talk about in the church about, about giving and we talk about tithing and how do you, um, how do you give to the church and, and say, well, the Bible says we should give 10%. And I just, I, I don't agree with that. It does say in the Old Testament to give, you know, that they gave 10%. Um, but when I read the New Testament, I hear Jesus saying give everything. He says, give it all. Give it all back to God. Now, that doesn't mean, again, putting all your stuff in an envelope and mailing it to the church. You can. We'll take it. But that's not, that's not what that means. 
Um, but it does mean he's calling for lives that are completely dedicated to the kingdom of God. That in everything we do, we're bringing glory to God's kingdom. And however we're spending our money, we're bringing glory to God's kingdom. And it doesn't always mean we're, we're just spending our money on Christian things, but there are ways to spend money that, that bring joy to ourselves, that bring joy to others, that bring glory to God. There are ways that we can spend our money that, that do. They bring rest and refreshment to us. That doesn't mean it's against the kingdom of God. Um, but once it becomes an idol, once it becomes something we can't let go of, yes, then it is a problem. There's this idea of holding on to it loosely. But Jesus is calling for all of our lives, every single thing we have, every single moment we have, every single um, treasure or talent he has given us, to give it back to God. It is dramatic. It's darn near impossible, right? Short of, short of Jesus' return. But there is this calling on our hearts that we are working in that direction, and we do it joyfully, right? And that's the third thing, is why would we do something like that? Well, the third thing to remember is that God has written his image on our hearts, that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And this is a beautiful thing. Who do you belong to? Well, you belong to the Lord. And the fact of the matter is, it is really easy to become subject and servants to other things, right? We can become servants to our jobs. We can become servants to money. We can become servants to lust. We can become servants to alcohol and drugs and addiction. All of these things, they can become our masters and it can feel like they own us sometimes. All of us have some sort of besetting sin that's incredibly hard to overcome. And it can just time and time again come back to us to the point where we think, is this thing controlling me? But through Jesus, it is not. Through Jesus, our sins, the evil of this world, Satan himself, these things have no control over us. And we don't belong to them because we belong to Jesus. Because it is the image of God written in our hearts. And this God, who's made us in his image, is willing to go to the cross to die that we might be reconciled to him. So why would we give everything to God? Why would we give it all away so joyfully? Because of what he has done to us. Why would we dedicate our lives to him? Because he dedicated himself to us first. And so, no, Jesus isn't leading this political revolution. But what he's doing in the hearts and the minds of the people who follow him is politically revolutionary. He's completely changing our allegiance, completely changing our understanding of who we are and how we relate to the world. And he says, you are mine. And to be mine is to be a people of love and generosity and sacrifice. And if God's people understood that, it would turn the world upside down, would it not? And so, of all things, remember that, that you belong to Jesus. That his image, the image of God, is written on your hearts. And that's the most important thing for us to remember as Christians. Let us pray.
Lord, we thank you that you have inscribed your image onto the hearts of your people. In the hearts of all of us, Lord, even those who don't actually realize it, all, all people are made in your image. Let that be a source of comfort for us. Let that be a source of motivation for us. That by your love shown to us, our hearts would be transformed to show that same love and sacrifice to others. And that when that happens, Lord, I pray that this world will be flipped upside down for the sake of your kingdom. And help us, Lord, to remember that all men and women are made in your image. And help us, Lord, to treat them as such, that they too might know the love of your Son, Jesus. We ask this in his holy and precious name. Amen.